It was a Monday night when Barbara Haversmith, a 35-year-old woman from Vermont, appeared as a contestant on a singing competition television show. It was a fairly popular show, though not that popular, and it was a fairly well-viewed episode, though not that well-viewed. She stood on stage looking into the lights for a long moment before she started. This was not so unusual in itself, and people in the audience only really began shifting in their seats once she started in with the unintelligible whispers which opened the performance and set the rhythm for the song to come. The judges laughed at first, a defensive knee-jerk reaction. Then Barbara began to sing. Her voice was deep, and the words she sang were in a language which hadn't been heard for nearly a thousand years. The song was mournful but driving, fragile but powerful. Her voice soared and echoed through the otherwise silent auditorium. Its effect on the audience was such that not a soul stirred when she stopped singing to remove a primitive-looking pan flute from a leather bag. She played the same tune then on the flute, which lasted perhaps another minute, and then she thanked the judges, looked directly into the camera, and walked off stage. The auditorium was still silent when the network went to commercial. The phone lines at the television station were immediately flooded with calls from people wanting to know what the song was. Nobody knew. A man in New York jumped from the balcony of his 27th story apartment. A wife in Wisconsin who was cooking dinner at the time took a kitchen knife and stabbed her husband nearly a dozen times. Reports and rumors of horrific and inexplicable violence began to fly, and before the show could air on the West Coast, the network pulled the plug. All official copies of the show were destroyed, and an investigation was conducted which found no connection between Barbara Haversmith's performance and the rash of violence which gripped most of the country between 8 and 10 p.m. that Monday night. Several journalists looking into the incident since have found that Barbara Haversmith was an assumed name no real identity for the woman was ever established, and there have been no documented sightings of her since her appearance on the show. Twas a witch once dwelt in this very spot, in a cabin perched atop this lonely hill. They claim so in the town. All that remains is a stone foundation, where an old claw-footed oak now stands beside, barren. The straits are visible over the treetops in the near distance, the din of them churning always beneath the wind, swirling this way and that through the wavering branches. There is a terrible power to the place still, claim some in the town. If you place your palm atop the cold stone foundation, you can feel it, an electricity in the wrist rippling up through you.
This may explain why so many are found unconscious here, many after sudden and extended disappearances. Such was the recent case of the slumber party that disappeared from the second floor bedroom without a trace and were found atop this lonely hill nearly two weeks later, still dressed in their nightclothes. A half dozen girls and not one could say how they'd come to be here or recall anything that had happened them that night or since. Pine needles lie spread across the mossy surface of the four pillars, the stone crumbling with some dignity into yellow grass tucked shivering into the earth. The pair were going on nearly their third hour of digging when finally their shovel found solid wood. The smaller of the two men was the older by far. He had fast, flitty eyes and was laying on one elbow in the grass, taking sips of whiskey, and he nearly choked on his drink when he heard the dull thud of the coffin roof. From his hands and knees he peered down into the grave. The larger, younger man stepped back, leaning on the shovel to wipe his brow. He bent his knees a bit to keep the top of his head out of the biting wind. The older man clapped him on the back and helped him clamber topside. A stream of loose dirt and small rocks skidded down and across the pine boards. The older man followed, nearly splintering the carpentry despite his size. With his palm, he brushed aside the excess earth and then began prying at the lid. Inside, they found a woman in a white dress, no older than twenty. Death had hardly touched her beauty. The young man wretched at the smell. The older man bit his lip, as if to say, What a shame. And then he bent over and gathered his arms around her waist. The younger man received her back into the world of the living with his eyes clenched. Their work half finished, the pair sat on the grass, passing back and forth of the bottle. The lady between them looked as if she were napping through their picnic, save for the strange angle at which her head lay. God will punish us, said the younger man. His eyes were fixed on some indeterminate point in the distance. He will not said the older man, and the king will reward us in this life. The younger man took the bottle, but did not take a sip. I wish you'd not asked me along for this. That's some way to show your appreciation. The older man took back the bottle and finished it. What could they possibly want with her, said the younger man. I don't know. I don't ask such questions. Someone was approaching the graveyard via the road. The older man turned down the lantern till it was barely a glow, and then he hid the glow behind the girl's headstone. The traveler paused for a moment at the open gate before hurrying down the road, his footsteps twice as quick leaving as they'd been in coming. It can't be anything good or holy, said the younger man. He kept his voice low. Of course it's not. But what business is that of ours? There is no doubting they will use her for devilry, for their black sorcery. This poor girl will be a party to the foulest evil rituals, the details of which my mind dares not even imagine. She will not. She is with the Lord in heaven. But why abet them? Why furnish them the supplies of their meddling? The older man stood up and tossed the empty bottle into the empty coffin. If you find work that pays better, 
Perhaps you'll be as generous sharing it with me as I've been with you. day after Easter and the water was freezing. As soon as Carol saw Frank's kayak begin to swamp, she knew they were in trouble. The weather had turned suddenly while they were out paddling and it took all of Carol's strength to drag her husband and his boat ashore. They landed far from where they launched and where their car was parked. Rain was not far behind the wind which had chased them ashore, so they set off into the woods, Frank already soaked and shivering, hunched beneath a towel. Evening followed swiftly thereafter and found the pair still several miles from their car and struggling to keep the trail. Their only flashlight was dying, and Carol could hear Frank's teeth chattering even through the blowing gales. Still they walked, they walked some more, until they saw that the trail was beginning to wind its way up a tall hill, and there was a small light atop the hill amongst the trees, a candle in the window of a small log cabin. Carol gave Frank her coat for the final stretch of their journey. It was full dark when they arrived at the front door of the cabin, and little slices of spring hail were screaming in off of the water, not more than a few miles to the north. The door was answered shortly after Carol knocked. A withered old woman gazed out at them. What do you want? she said. You shouldn't go knocking on folks' doors at this hour. You're liable to give an old woman a heart attack. I'm sorry, but my husband's kayak sank and I'm worried he's going to get hypothermia. Carol could see a fire roaring in the fireplace behind the old woman. The door closed for a moment while she jiggered with the lock, and when she opened it again she was carrying a blanket, which she draped over Frank's shoulders as he crossed the threshold, teeth still chattering like manic tap shoes. He and Carol dropped to the floor in front of the fire while the old woman prepared two bowls of stew from a large steaming pot. Carol thanked her. The old woman said nothing, only nodded, and retreated to her rocking chair in a shadowy corner of the room to resume her knitting. Frank's bottom lip trembled, turning a pale blue. Water dripped from the drooping strands of his hair and puddled in a rut in the floorboards. You are travelers? asked the old woman. Yes. I can tell you a tale, said the old woman, to help pass the evening. Do you have a phone? No. She gestured at Frank with a bony finger. Feed him. It will help. Carol did as the woman instructed. Frank slurped weakly at the trembling broth. Most of the spoonful dribbled down his chin to mingle with the rainwater on the floor, where it danced with the dark reflection of the fire. It was many centuries ago, in country much like this, during the time when the clan of Moriarty held dominion over all the north coast, from the river in the east to the mountains in the west, an island stood not far off the coast, which was just visible on the horizon on clear days, and which the clan and all the population of the wild countryside considered sacred and possibly haunted. This was in the early days of Christianity, when folk attended mass in the mornings to appease their lords and at night worshipped the old gods behind the closed doors of their own homes. Many claimed to have heard a strange whistling coming from the place 
and days when the wind was right, so faint that it almost sounded like no more than a ringing in your ears, except for that bizarre, enchanting melody. None were allowed to visit the island save for William, and few would have volunteered. William had worked for the Moriarty's from the time that he was a teenager, ferrying their dead across the straits to the island for burial. He lived in a hut in the woods atop a hill, much like this one, and was widely thought to dabble in sorcery. Though he was largely shunned from village life, many were the so-called Christians who had ventured a visit to his hut in the night and paid him for a love spell or a curse on arrival. It was a windy day in late May when William was summoned from his dwelling. The matriarch of the family had died. They would sit with her body through the night, and in the morning William would embark with her for the island. Through one window of his hut, William could see the lighthouse, nothing more than a burning dot in all that darkness. His other window opened onto a windswept moor. The windows in the keep across the way were ablaze all night, and when the wind began to blow from the east, William would hear the multitudes of wailing coming from within those high stone walls. He woke before sunrise and walked the short path down to the beach. The sand was cool, the dune grass brushed his ankles. The conifers were all bent permanently backward, exposed roots like fingers clawing madly into the chalky topsoil for anything solid, so that even when the straits were at rest, the whole of the terrestrial world was frozen in a pose of permanent subjugation at the memory of their past violence. These desperate angles caused them to tremble with loathing at even the gentlest summer breeze. William had known the dead woman intimately, in three secret trysts. Her father was the first of the family that William escorted to the island. They locked eyes while the coffin was loaded into the boat, and upon his return William was invited to dine with the family in the keep as a gesture of appreciation. After dinner, as the rest of the family retired, the woman called William into her quarters. She was not married then, as she was some years later when her older sister died. She stayed up with her hacking and wheezing into the small hours each night for several weeks until the sister finally died. She went to him then, knocking on the door of his hut the night before he was to sail with her sister. He never saw the sunrise. The straits were too cloaked in fog. At some point, the sky had begun to glow, and it grew brighter with each passing minute. He was finishing preparations on his boat when he saw the caravan depart the keep and begin to snake their way like ants across the moor. They arrived several minutes later and began loading the coffin without a word. William searched her husband's face, but their eyes did not meet. He stood like a statue with a hand on the back of each of his small children who gripped numbly at his legs. The water was utterly calm. A seagull called out from somewhere in the mist, circled half into view for a moment, and then disappeared back into the soup. The same men who loaded the coffin helped him push off. William gave one look back over his shoulder. Already the troop of warriors were fading. He set his sight forward, where he knew the island lay waiting. Wisps of fog snaked past the boat like lingering incense, and soon sounds of land faded as well, leaving William, the boat, and the dead woman, alone in a room, passing in silence through oblivion. 
the water lapping at the side of the boat, the oars dipping muted through the mirrored surface of the water. William takes his pipe and tobacco from his pocket, packs it, strikes a match. Her presence on the boat is immutable. It is undeniable. Her coffin is a polished mahogany, finished with a simple flare of design on the bevel of the lid, ending abruptly in sharp 90-degree cuts, the clean linearity of the box. The woman's lips pulled taut inside and parallel, neither happy nor sad, until it's stubbornly shut. As the sun rose higher in the sky, it began to burn away some of the fog, and a cut of blue sky opened up overhead. Not long after that, the sheer cliff walls of the island's southern face revealed themselves through the dissipating gloom. The island, sprouting from its own reflection, imposed on the soul as if it were twice its actual height. A slice of the rock face caught the sun at such an angle that it began to glitter in bronze. William's boat sailed boldly onto the watery image of the place. The cliffs grew taller, swallowing up more of the horizon until he was close enough to spot a bird circling the cypress trees which guarded the approach. He cut his course straight past the island, right by the tumult of rocks and jaggedry, which in rougher conditions would have eaten his boat and ground him into mints. Many years ago, when clans from across the water were invading, one of their boats sailed too close to the island and was torn board from board. When William next sailed to the island, he could see, for a stretch, the faces of the sailors in their watery graves amongst the rocks, with eyes watching him which appeared almost to glow in the murk. And when William reached out with oar, he found that the water was deeper than some trick of the light let on, for, though it looked as if he should have contacted the corporeal remains of the invaders, the face of his oar slid right through their visages as if they were only more water. He never liked to look down into the water around the rocks after that. He steered easily into the cove that the open water had carved into the far side of the island. He pulled the boat up alongside the dock and tied it off there. Once he'd lit the wall sconce, he went to work unloading the coffin. He slid the matriarch onto a low platform and then ducked through a small door which had been cut out of the rock centuries ago. The staircase inside was similarly carved and wound straight up nearly 100 feet. William did not bother to light a match. He found it easier to use his hands in a sort of half-crawling motion, and so once he began to climb, it became unfeasible to hold one anyways. The passageway did not afford him the room to turn around once he was thoroughly wedged into the heart of the rock. His heavy hop breathing echoed back at him, and when he steadied his breathing, he could hear his heart beating and his blood rushing through his veins. No matter how many times he does this climb, there comes a time in every ascent in which he begins to contemplate the possibility that the gap of sunlight will fail to appear overhead, begins to really believe that it never will, that he is going to suffocate and be entombed in the stairwell. But always the sun appears. This time is no different. His head emerged amongst blowing grass, like a revenant rebirth done to the land of the living, of the warm sun and cool breeze. Dozens of statues, only just larger than an actual man, so that the effect went more felt than noticed, lined the gleaming white walkway. The hedges and grass along its borders were neatly cropped, the mausoleums scrubbed to gleaming. William grabbed the wheel and cranked again and again. A hundred feet below, the platform began to rise, carrying the woman in her box skyward one lurch at a time.
Once she had reached the surface, William hoisted her onto the cart, which would deliver her to the slot in the family mausoleum, which had been waiting for her longer than she'd had a name. What did he do with her? The fire had simmered to a weak murmur, and the old woman was up tending to it. Frank had fallen asleep, and only now did Carol notice his light snoring. Outside, the rain had stopped. The forest was steaming. Did she rise from the tomb for one final rendezvous by moonlight, only for the boatman to wake in the morning and find, by the light of day, that he'd shared a bed with a corpse? The old woman almost smiled. Who told you that? Nobody. I made it up myself. Inferred it, you might say. Well, it's only part of the story, anyway. When they met their third and final time, the matriarch knew that she was soon to die. She stowed away with her daughter's coffin and appeared to William on the island. At first he must have thought her a specter. She showed him where a patch of nightshade was growing and told him of her coming death. Wait for me here, three nights after you have interred me. On the third night, eat nine of these berries and lay down in your shack. That will bring you close enough to death to meet me. He did as she'd instructed then, peered out of the window of his shack and smoked a pipe into the late hours of the first night and saw nothing so much as a squirrel or chipmunk move all night. On the second day, the wind picked up life, and a figure appeared on a rocky outcropping at the northernmost point of the island. The figure stepped back from the precipice and began making its way toward William. A man in a dark cloak tied tight to his bare head, lantern swinging from his staff. He passed William without so much as a glance and made for the matriarch's tomb. His face was small and smooth, like an infant's, his head lined with wrinkles like the tributaries of some great nameless river. He arrived outside of the tomb and gazed in for several minutes, his eyes burning with focus. Then, though nothing outwardly changed, he relented and sat on a low wall, apparently looking at nothing in particular. William approached him. Are you death? The bald man did not react in the slightest, or even show any indication that he had registered William's presence for a long period of silence. Then he looked up at him with a gentle grin. I am near enough to him. He pointed with a long, bent finger. Looking for something? William went to the grove where the stranger had pointed and found there a dense growth of nightshade. It had been five years since he'd made his promise. He picked nine berries and retreated to his shack, where he started a fire and laid down in his bed. He felt the juice run between his teeth, sweet with a faint acridness building on the back of his tongue. His face grew hot, the room suddenly contorting at the edges of his perception, never when he tried to focus on it. The fire ripped and crackled with fury, and then faded back until the room was awash in long, deep shadows. Sometime after midnight, the foliage began to stir with the whispered echoes of a distant storm. William watched it pass across the horizon, probing the statues for the most minute movement with each silent glint of lightning. That was when the knock came on his door. The woman entered a moment later. William was too weak even to raise a hand in greeting, 
she sat at the edge of his bed. You must depart before sunset tomorrow. Do not pass another night in this place. And then what happened? It is as you have foretold. In the morning, the boatman awoke to find himself lying on a slab next to a cold and rictus body. He flees the tomb but spends all day milling about the island, searching in vain for the cloaked stranger or his lover. In the afternoon, the weather began to turn, though, and the sky threatened worse to come. Sure enough, by the time he had readied his boat, the water was too violent to leave the cove. Stranded, he had no choice but to return to his shack for one last night. He waited up all night for her to pay him one more visit, holding his breath with every change in the wind. The rising and falling echoing with faint whispers of her voice, tossed this way and that, always just beneath an intelligible frequency. Each time he began to fall asleep, he was awakened by that queer, terrible melody whistled on the wind. It seemed always as if the music had been carrying on for some time in the white noise of his subconscious before his mind focused in on it, and it seemed always to come from some other part of the island as if some mad piper were bandying about in search of his quarry. By the time the sun rose, they claim, he had lost his mind. The king claimed to have been visited in his dreams by the specter of his deceased wife, and upon William's return from the island, he appointed him official court alchemist. Thenceforth, William spent most evenings toiling away in his tower in the keep, working deep into the night and only returning to his bed across the windswept moor in the early hours before sunrise. Travelers passing at night claimed to have seen indescribable colors between the slats of the study's high windows. They claimed wretched, uncanny odors emanated from the place. Children frightened each other with tales of friends of friends who ventured too near the keep and were never seen again. The more paranoid of the adults were liable to whisper in private that the court allowed William his selection of children as stock for his spells and experiments, so dedicated was the king to the work. Some even claimed that the court procured the babes and children for him. All but the most shameless and the most desperate ceased their nocturnal visits to him in those years, and word went around that he was engaged, not in alchemy, but rather in plumbing the secrets of the Kabbalah at the behest of the eternally grief-stricken king, who for all his remaining years expressed no greater desire than to see his dead wife returned to the flesh, if only for one evening. A number of years after the death of their mother, the king's remaining children, a set of boy and girl twins, died exactly a year apart from one another under mysterious and mysteriously similar circumstances. William ferried both of them to the island in their time. From then on, rumors would begin any time a member of the clan passed, no matter how minor in political stature or distantly related. Some of the folks in the wild countryside will tell you that in his old age, he would conjure any excuse he could manage for a chance to return to the island, for a chance to see his lover as he once knew her in his youth. Every now and then, when the wind is right, you'll hear a melody carrying across the water. It'll be so strange that you'll know it at once. 
That is what the locals call William's Whale. Frank's snoring had grown louder, and Carol fell asleep not long after the old woman cut the last thread, tethering her to the waking world. She dreamed terrible, untranslatable dreams, and when she awoke it was still dark. The fire had burned down to embers, and the old woman was bent over the shirtless body of her husband, rubbing a powdery substance in small circles on his chest and whispering in his ear in some foreign tongue. She lit a candle and dripped a fine bulb of wax onto Frank's forehead, which she pressed with her thumb. Something aromatic was smoldering in a bowl by her side, and she breathed in a mouthful of the smoke and blew it in his face before kissing him on the lips. Get off my husband, slut. The old woman looked up, evidently startled at the interruption. She studied Carol in a way that told her that she had, without realizing it, made an irrevocable choice. She could pinpoint the moment at which the empathy drained from the old woman's eyes. The rain is spent. You should be gone before the morning, both of you. She allowed Carol to load Frank's unconscious body onto her wood sled. Will he live? The old woman looked down at him and grimaced. Impossible to say. Carol set off into the pre-dawn darkness, each breath hanging in the air above her head. Like an answer to a prayer, Carr ended up being on the other side of a hill, only a few minutes' walk from the old lady's cabin. It started on the first try. Another prayer answered. She set off down the gravel road, the road glowing sulfur white in the high beams, the most immediate pine trees thrown into manic relief. She drove and drove and drove into endless darkness, whipping through the fog. Minutes melted into the void. An hour or more passed driving into the nothingness of the night, the sameness of the trees. She drove forward for a lifetime. A gas station sign appeared amongst the tops of the pine trees like a false moon, still alight despite the station itself being dark and closed and probably long abandoned. Shouldn't it be morning by now? A few minutes later she saw it, the Flamingo Hotel. A blinking neon flamingo on the sign offered a chance at an oasis in the vast and crushing indifference. A pink plastic doppelganger lay toppled in the mud just outside the wrought iron pool fence, itself protected by a bent copse of cypress trees. The pool was empty, but uncovered. The office, too, when entirely in pink, was empty. The radio on the cluttered desk muttered mostly incoherent static. The night refused to relent. A logbook laid open on the counter, a pen dangled by a frayed string. When Carol returned to the car, Frank was not breathing. His face was a frosty white. Everywhere had taken on a blue pallor, save for his lips. His lips were pink and flush and as alive as the first day she'd kissed him. She knocked on every door at the motel to no avail. Nobody so much as hollered at her from behind a closed door to let them sleep. A dog barked somewhere in the cold distance. They drove on, funneled along the two-lane highway between the low pines until they arrived at a crossroads. Carol stopped the car, idling at the intersection for a long time, unsure of where to go. She glanced left and right, then left again and right again before crossing. She pulled into the parking lot of a ruined church, 
The stained glass had long ago been loosed from the windows, leaving only gaping black eye holes in the face of the architecture. Carol cranked the wheel to bring the nose of her car around 360, and as her high beams swept across the windows, they froze. For the briefest of moments, two dozen people or more, standing spread about the gutted interior of the structure in abject blackness, trapped them forever in Carol's memory in a thornbush of obliquely drawn shadows. She gunned the engine then, and pulled back onto the main highway. They drove and drove. The hospital was nearly an hour away, and Frank was not breathing. There was nothing to be done except to drive. As the car crested another hill, she gazed down on the next mile and a half of road, a long carpet rolled down a straight slope into the bowl of a vast U that had been carved through the blanket of pines which otherwise spread from horizon to horizon. She'd never paid the stars much attention before, but now as she looked up through the windshield, their arrangement seemed somehow unfamiliar. A crisp half-moon hung over the two lanes, sighted for a moment between the twin rows of pine as if the far rise of the road were a ramp launching their car at the heavens. Carol turned on the radio and found only white noise.